Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. And I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU, as always, my co-host Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. We're back at the bookstore live in front of an audience with a Colorado author. And this is a book that's very rooted in Colorado. Very excited. Who have we been reading this month, Arsene? We've been reading Shelley Reed. The book is Go as a River, takes place down near Gunnison. And it's just a beautiful book, like you said, where the setting of Colorado plays a major role. We're delighted to have Shelley join us. Hi, Shelley. Thank you so much for being here. And we're going to really get into the Colorado, the nature, the water, the river, all of that. But there are so many wonderful characters in this. And I want to start off by talking about, well, I suppose the central character, Victoria. Yeah. Tori, as she's known, definitely not Vicky, somebody <laughs> finds out. But Tori is a young woman in 1940s in a Western town in Western Colorado, yeah. surrounded by men and really misunderstood. She's surrounded by men because of a family tragedy. And she's really fighting to be her own person. And she comes across this beautiful, gentle, young man, Wilson. So take us through those two main characters to set us up. Okay, will do. Um, first of all, so happy to be here. Thank you both so much for having me. Thank you everyone who came out tonight. Um, the character of Victoria Nash, first of all, I have to say I love her. I've, I've lived with Victoria for many years and um, uh, in her, are a lot of themes to explore in terms of the way in which we grow and change uh, as we face challenges in our lives and we, we, we become who we are over time and experience. Mm -hmm. So when we meet Victoria, it's 1948. She's growing up on the, wild, uh, the banks of the wild Gunnison River on the western slope of Colorado. And um, when we meet Victoria, she's rather naive to the ways of the world. As you said, um, she's growing up motherless in a house full of men, and um, she knows very little about the world. Um, I, as a writer and also as a thinker, am very, am very interested in the idea of happenstance, of like sometimes our lives, all of you probably know this feeling, our lives are going along a particular way, and then something completely unanticipated happens, and our lives suddenly veer a completely different way. And that's what happens on the first pages of the novel to Victoria Nash when she meets Wilson Moon, just happens upon him on a, on a street corner. Um, I wanted to immerse the reader in that story and in that connection between these two characters immediately. And that unanticipated meeting between these two characters ends up altering both of their lives profoundly. I mean, it alters many people's lives, not just the two yeah. of them, because it has repercussions. Uh, Wilson is uh, Native American, and in 1948, 49, yeah. you know, Gunnison Valley, maybe that wasn't such a great situation for him to be in. Yeah. You know, he wasn't very accepted. Tell us about why you chose to have uh, that as, you know, part of his identity, and what does that allow you to show about that time period? Yeah, thank you for asking that, because, um, well, first of all, I'll say that the character of Wilson Moon, again, a, another character who I've really come to love, but I, I was very careful in the writing of the character of Wilson Moon. Um, we'll talk in a moment, I think, about Iola and the displacement of the people in Iola. Um, but once I set my character, Victoria, in the town of Iola, um, the novel became very much about place and about displacement. 
And I certainly could not write a narrative about the American West without, uh, about displacement in the American West without including on some level the indigenous experience. And so as we will talk a little bit about what happened to the town of Iola, certainly previous to that, um, the displacement of, of the indigenous Utes of the area of Gunnison County, um, the painful and violent displacement of the Utes people from that area, Will is meant to be a character that acknowledges that, first of all, and also is a, a counterbalance to Victoria in many ways. Victoria, as we learn right away in the beginning of the book, is deeply rooted in place, deeply rooted in her generational um, connection to the land in the Gunnison Valley. Um, Wilson Moon, on the other hand, is a character who, because of ancestral displacement, has become a drifter. He's someone who ends up belonging nowhere actually. And so I tried to investigate in these two characters the way that displacement played out for them very differently because of their different cultural heritage. Well, he says at one point uh, to Victoria, like, one place is like any other. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. And, yeah. uh -huh. and she's just kind of flabbergasted. She really yeah. doesn't understand that, does she? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, you know, like I said, that in the first pages of the book, he says that to her, and she says, it is so baffling to her. Again, she's fairly innocent at the beginning of the book. She hasn't ever been outside of Viola, Colorado, a tiny little ranching town. And um, she, because she's so invested ancestrally in her place and her land, she then goes on in that description that you're referring to, to talk about all the minutiae of life in the Gunnison Valley and in the town of Viola that means so much to her, that really roots her in place. And Will says, one place is just like the other, ain't it? Is the way he phrases it. And she's like, I've never even met anybody who felt that way. So um, the contrast is set up between the two of them right away. And as much as Victoria Tory is connected to Wilson in a very deep and profound way, she is, I mean, she's a young girl, she is naive, she's never had any life experience, but also she's never been educated because there was no history taught to people who feel, oh, we're the people who've settled here, we're right. multi-generational, what about the people who were displaced? And it's only a few decades later when she meets a good friend who is much more worldly and who is much more aware, this is during the Vietnam War and, and the book is bookended by yeah, two wars, wars World War yeah. Two and Vietnam and when her friend who is as I said following the news much more worldly and she actually makes the reference and it's almost this light bulb moment for yeah. Victoria who's lived through the trauma and seen how Wilson was um treated yeah. and abused but it's it's like she never made that connection herself I think she's so baffled by the idea of prejudice um, when she meets Wilson Moon all she sees is another human being who has kind eyes and another human being that she connects with. And so the idea that that, that cultural bias that's been inherited by some of the people in the town, and because Iola was a real town with real people, who some of them, after they were displaced, um, ended up in the Gunnison Valley. In the town of Gunnison, we have people who have who lived in the town of Iola. It was very important to me to make sure that I didn't misrepresent the people of the town as all being prejudiced or all being biased against Will. Um, but certainly, as you say, Arson, at that time period, a young Native American 
drifter who comes into a town because of that inherited cultural bias um, would be looked at by some people as suspect. Victoria is not one of those people. I think one of the beauty, beautiful things about the relationship of Wilson, Moon, and Victoria is that they just come together human heart to human heart, transcendent of all of those cultural biases that could instead create vitriol or suspicion or stereotype, and it just doesn't. And so she's baffled about why Wilson is treated the way he is, perceived the way he is. Um, it's just not a reality structure for her. So um, that part of the book is actually very important to me because I, I think it suggests to all of us that it's a different way of coming together, human being to human being, that we can come together transcendent of those, of those prejudices and try to just see each other for who we are. So you, we've mentioned the town of Iola a few times. And um, you write very beautifully about it, very movingly. Um, I think a lot of your descriptions of nature and the land are really um, moving. And so I was hoping that you can read us probably just the prologue oh, to yeah. help set up and give people a little sound of what the what your writing is like and also oh, yeah. a little bit about Iola. Okay, yeah, yeah, wonderful. And then we can talk a little bit about the history of Iola, like you said, and help everyone understand why I was so drawn to um, to telling that historical uh, story, digging into it a little bit more, because it's actually a little piece of Colorado history that a lot of Colorado people are not even aware of. So we can talk about that in a moment. Um, this is the prologue to the book. It's how I chose to open the book. Um, once the prologue is done and we, we go into chapter one, that's when Victoria and Will meet, like boom, right there on the very first sentence. But previous to that, I wanted to set the place. I wanted to set the tone. So this is the prologue. Imagine what lingers on the black bottom of a lake. Debris rivered in or tossed from boats grows shaggy and soft. Pouty fish swim their strange lives, far from the hook in inseparable breath and motion. Imagine patches of lake weed dancing like lithe, unobserved women. Stand on the edge of a lake, the low waves gulping at your shoes, and imagine how close you are to a world as silent and alien as the moon, out of reach of light and heat and sound. My home is at the bottom of a lake. Our farm lies there, mud-bound, its remnants indistinguishable from boat wreckage. Sleek trout troll the remains of my bedroom and the parlor where we sat as a family on Sundays. Barns and troughs rot, tangled barbed wire rusts, the once fertile land marinates in idleness. A history book version of the creation of Blue Mesa Reservoir might portray the project as heroic, part of the grand vision to carry precious water from the Colorado River's tributaries to the arid, arid southwest. Good intentions may have plugged the once wild Gunnison River and forced it to be a lake, but I know another story. I used to stand knee deep in this section of the Gunnison when it still rushed fast and frothy through the valley of my birth, the vast and lonely big blue wilderness rising above it. I knew the town of Iola when it woke each morning to fragrant breakfasts and bustling farms and ranches, how the sunrise illuminated the east side of Maine, then inched uptown across the train tracks and schoolyard to ignite the tiny church's one round red and blue stained glass window. I knew all the shortcuts and town folk and the oldest gnarled tree consistently producing the sweetest peaches in my family's orchard, and I knew perhaps more than most the sadness of this place. 
Good intentions relocated the Iola graveyard high on a hill. Each of my family's headstones hopefully matched with their appropriate remains, where it still sits behind a white iron fence, bent and twisted from the weight of snow. Good intentions otherwise drowned the entirety of Iola, Colorado. Imagine a town silent, forgotten, decomposing at the bottom of a lake that once was a river. If this makes you wonder whether the joys and pains of a place wash away as the floodwaters rise and swallow, I can tell you they do not. The landscapes of our youth create us, and we carry them within us, storied by all they gave and stole in who we become. That's author Shelley Weed reading from Go as a River. That's the prologue and it sets up the book perfectly. Shelley's our guest today at the Radio Book Club. We're live at the Boulder Bookstore. So let's talk about Iola, a real town that, yeah. as we heard so beautifully put in that prologue, was drowned. Yes. For it was sacrificed in the name of progress. And, and of I want to dig into all of this, but let's talk about Iola, this yeah. town near Gunnison in the Gunnison Valley, yeah. that was one of three towns that three ultimately towns. ended up flooded, drowned, yeah. uh, to make way for the, um, the, re the, reservoir. the reservoir. Yeah. So Blue Mesa Reservoir, if maybe some of you have driven past it or seen it, it's the largest reservoir in Colorado. And it's a central part to our lives in the Gunnison Valley. I guess I should say that I've lived in the Gunnison Valley my entire adult life, um, well over 30 years. And I spent a lot of time there as a child because I had family there even before I was born. And I'm super grateful for that because the Gunnison Valley, um, you know, we're, my family, my husband is here, my son, were very, very rooted. And, and some of his friends who were born and raised in the Valley were very, very rooted in that place. It's a very unique and amazing place. And in the Gunnison Valley, all of us swim and boat and fish and ice skate on Blue Mesa Reservoir. It's just part of our lives. And um, what a lot of people don't realize is that, as you say, underneath Blue Mesa Reservoir are three towns, Iola, Sapinero, and Cibola, that were thriving ranch towns and farm, farm communities. Um, there was, it's a, uh, Gunnison River is famous for its fishing, so there were fishing resorts, and it was lively throughout um, the late 19th and, and into the mid 20th century. Um, when the Colorado River Compact was signed, a very complicated water laws. As many of you know, water laws in the American West are incredibly complex. And we're, it's very relevant to the conversation today because as we all know, uh, Lake Powell is, is very, very low right now. And what a lot of people, even people who live on the Western Slope didn't realize about Blue Mesa Reservoir is it's actually a reservoir not to hold water for the benefit of Gunnison County. It's, a, it's a, a water that can be used to supply Lake Powell with water when it gets too low. And thus, with some of the drought that we've had in the American West um, over the last several years, for the first time since Iola um, was flooded and the Blue, the Blue Mesa Reservoir was created with the Blue Mesa Dam, for the first time since it happened in 1965 and 1966, three years ago and this summer, the town of Iola, the remnants of the town of Iola actually emerged because there was a water call based on the Colorado River Compact that allowed um, downstream entities, particularly Lake Powell, to drain the water out of Blue Mesa Reservoir in order to serve um, the, lower, the lower water needs. 
And so, you know, it's generations and decades of complexity around what created Blue Mesa Reservoir, what's going to continue on as Blue Mesa Reservoir, that I think all of Coloradoans should be more aware of, um, because it's certainly not um, unique in the complexity of, uh, of water politics in the American West. Um, when Blue Mesa Reservoir was proposed, when the dam was proposed, um, the people of Iola, Sapanero, and Cibola were given no choice. They had to evacuate the land, even if they'd farmed it for generations, as my character Victoria's family has, has, has done. She's a fictional character that's set in a real situation, but the actual people who lived in Iola had no, um, no choice but to leave. And the first-person accounts of that era are incredibly painful. It was very, very devastating for the people to have to leave. Um, and so having grown up and, and been in the Gunnison Valley my whole life, I always wondered, what is the story there? What is the story of those people? What did it feel like to have to be displaced from that land? And then, of course, I also was wondering, what does it feel like to be displaced um, previous to the white settlers of Iola, the indigenous population? And those layers and layers of pain around displacement or something I really wanted to dig into in this book. You mentioned earlier many people ended up in Gunnison, yeah. in Grand Junction. Where and Montrose. And Montrose. Mm -hmm. So do they carry the memory of Viola? I mean, yeah. where where is that history being stored beyond in people's personal family yeah. history and legacy and lore? Yeah, well, I had to do a lot of research for this book. You know, so much of it is from my own imagination and the the elements of the natural landscapes, which maybe we'll talk about the wild landscapes in the book, came very easy for me because I spend a lot of time in the wild landscapes of the Gunnison Valley. So I, it was a joy to describe that. But writing about um, the actual events of the creation of Blue Mesa Reservoir, I really wanted to get it right. So I did a lot of historical research. Luckily, we have some wonderful historians in the Gunnison Valley who are really the story keepers of the Gunnison Valley that I know very well, the former colleagues of mine at Western Colorado University. And I interviewed them. We have some wonderful museums in the valley. Um, the Colorado Historical Society has good documentation on Iola and the, the building of the dam. And so once I was able to really dig into it, um, I was able to find the factual information that I needed. Um, but then the stories of the, of the people and the heartbreak of it um, came from uh, interviews and, and chatting with the people and um, uh, some of the people who remember life before, before the dam when the Gunnison River ran wild all the way through that area, which is unimaginable, I think, for a lot of people who have never seen it. It's interesting in the book, Victoria, you know, I think she misses that wild Gunnison River, but when the time comes, she's ready to leave Iowa. She's yeah. one of the few town people that's yeah. not heartbroken no, by it. And she wants to she wants to save her peaches. So maybe you could talk about her situation a little bit and, and her peaches. Because yeah. the peaches play a key role. If, if you have the cover of the book, you can yeah. see beautiful <laughs> illustration of the peaches. And they, they play, play a key role, but that's what she's more connected to that and the wildness of the river than she is actually to the town. Yeah, it has a lot to do with what I mentioned in the prologue that does the pain of a place wash away when the floodwaters rise. rise. For Victoria, they do not. And so I think the story, the easier story to tell would have been the story of 
the sorrow of leaving Iola. I thought the more complicated, more interesting story to tell was a Victoria, who you'll learn when you read the book if you haven't already, is the first one to sell out, is the first one to agree to the government plans um, of um, purchasing the land, and the first one to want to leave. Um, there's a lot of pain for Victoria in the town of Viola. And I want to just highlight that I think for any place, there's layers of experience. There, we can't idealize or romanticize at any given town just because it's idyllic and bucolic and the, there's ranchers and a beautiful river and trout and eagles and all of these amazing things, that it wasn't a place that also carried pain. And for Victoria, it did carry pain. And there's a line that she says, you know, she says, I longed for erasure. She knew that she would be ostracized um, by the other people in the town who saw it as tragedy, but she needed to go um, for reasons I won't go into, so I don't spoil too much of the plot, but she needed to go. And so Arson references the peaches. I, I do have to say with the title that I chose, and when my publisher chose um, peaches for the cover of the book as opposed to a river, I was actually a little bit surprised, but in the end, I'm actually really grateful because it highlights the, the, um, the primacy, the importance of the peach orchard in the book that holds a lot of symbolism, a lot of metaphor for Victoria's journey. Um, Victoria's family um, uh, is an, has an ancestral peach farm in, in Iola that when um, uh, the valley is going to be flooded, her main concern becomes this ancestral peach farm. And so along with having to do a lot of research around the, around the building of Blue Mesa Dam, I had to do a lot of research around how to around peaches and how peaches grow. Um, I've actually been asked in a couple of interviews, like, are you a peach farmer? And I was like, no, I wish I was a peach farmer, but thank you for asking. So I, that makes me feel like I did the, the job fairly well. But I, I popped over to the North Fork River Valley, Peonia, Hotchkiss, that area. And then some of you are probably familiar with the amazing peaches that are grown in the Palisade area and the Grand, the Grand Valley around Grand Junction. Um, those Western Slope peaches, oh my gosh, they're amazing. And so, um, but one of the things that I learned in answer to your question is that um, peaches are incredibly difficult to grow, especially in Colorado. They're very sensitive to frost and weather um, variations. And so the peaches in the book symbolize you know, the ability to grow against the odds, um, the ability to grow in new soil. Um, it's the one thing that holds Victoria's rather complicated family together. And so, and, and certainly a lot of the peach farming that goes on on the western slope of Colorado is generational because it is so difficult and it's such a precise skill that it's handed down generation after generation. And so I wanted to bring in some of that unique quality of the western slope, but also bring in that, that concept of fragility and um, allow Victoria to grow within that within that concept. And that's the role the peaches play in the book. The peaches represent such hope because hope, yeah. they do get transplanted, yeah. albeit it takes time because yeah. she does work with this professor mm. who helps her, you know, and does it, you know, with all his students. Yeah. And even though it looks like the first year after transplant to Paonia, the peaches are coming back, he's like, no, you need to trim up those uh, buds yeah. and let them lie dormant another couple of years. And, and it's almost like, you know, as you said, it's Tori's journey too, because she has to give herself time to fully heal from everything and, yeah. and, and to transplant too. I mean, it really is a wonderful visual, very tangible metaphor for transplant you know, dislocation, yeah, dislocation, and then 
the successful transplant essentially yeah. uh, you know as much pain and grief and loss is in the book because you know i think it's one of the ways that i've, I've gotten some amazing responses so far um from my, my novel, um, very emotional responses from readers. And that actually means so much to me because as a writer, I think the, the thing that I would wish for the most is that what I've written here and the characters that I've created would touch readers' hearts. And I, I've gotten a lot of response that, 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 that is, that's really happening for people. And I, I think one of the reasons is that Victoria carries a lot of grief and a lot of loss. And for me, um, I, I think that that's the most common and one of the most deep of all of human experiences. I certainly have had my fair share of grief and loss in my life, much of it actually in the midst of, um, of writing this book. And I tried to channel a lot of that into the book to humanize the story and hopefully be able to connect with, with readers' hearts. Because it, it wouldn't it be beautiful if we all could just come together and look in one another's eyes and say, you know, I have grief and loss, you have grief and loss. Why can't we connect human to human in that way? And so I think that Victoria's story exploring those, the depth of human experience is very, very important. But it was also important to me, as you're saying, is to turn it toward hope. Um, because even though we carry that pain, many of us, um, finding places to find hope in our lives and find meaning in our lives becomes really the quest of Victoria's entire journey. And I do think that that's really important. And I hope that readers find um, find a lot to believe in, in that element of her story. I wanted to ask you about her brother. Yeah. Because <laughs> he kind of plays the role, he does play the role of the villain in the story. But you're trying to write a book where you're, you're trying to show the full extent of human nature, yeah. human experience. So how do you create somebody who's kind of the villain, but you don't want it to become a caricature? Yeah. Like, talk a little bit about Seth and, and how you finesse that in the book. Well, I'll talk a little bit about Seth. Um, we meet Seth right away at the beginning of the, of the book. And you know right away um, that Victoria is just sort of over him, right? She, she, Victoria is someone who tries every single day to show up and do what's right. She doesn't always know exactly what that is or who gets to define that for her. Especially, you know, I wanted to dig into the experience of what does it mean to be a woman in the world. As a young woman, I think for her particularly, it's very difficult to know who she's supposed to be. But her brother um, is angry, and he's younger than she is, but he has a lot of hostility. He's certainly one of those people that was vulnerable to inheriting those, those cultural biases that create prejudice and, and anger. I try to make him as complicated as possible while maintaining his inability to transcend those emotions. So he's just very difficult for Victoria from the beginning. And then the way that, that it plays out towards tragedy, I, I try to set up Victoria and Seth as very, very different, very, very different beings in the world. Um, but one of the ways that I then tried to bring Seth back around is after Seth leaves Iola, Seth comes back into the novel a little bit later, a little bit older, a little bit more, I wouldn't say wise for sure, but a little bit more regretful of who he was as a younger man. And that, for those of you who have read it, that, that, um, 
that scene where Victoria and Seth um, have to meet again as after they're older on, their fr on the front porch. And you can tell that he knows that there is more to life and more to being than all this vitriol and this anger and this hostility and this prejudice that he carries, but he doesn't know how else to be. And um, in that way, I tried to create a little bit of sympathy for him. Also, we find out that Seth, she says that something about that there was one thing that mattered to his ragged heart, and it was the peaches. The peaches is the only thing that, that holds that family together. And so in Seth, I tried to create someone who was confused and angry and, and evil in a lot of ways, but also someone who we find actually does hold something sacred in his heart. Although at that point for Victoria, and I think for the reader, it's too late. It's too late to have any sort of um, compassion for him. I hope, actually, <laughs> I think, yeah. So the title of the book is Go as a River, and you write beautifully about the natural world and, you know, from the perspective of Tori and how she experiences the natural world. I mean, it has to be written by someone who has that deep connection themselves. But the natural flow of a river has been completely interrupted. And in many ways, that is the story of the settling of the American West, the white yeah. settling yeah. of the American West. When you look at how few free flowing rivers are in fact left yeah. and what that has meant. We've heard what it meant for towns, but what it's meant for the natural environment. And now we're living through this time of the contraction of water. We had this expansion Absolutely. of water with the building of the reservoirs. And now we're seeing what's happening and those secrets being unearthed literally as the reservoirs yeah are falling yeah. i mean your thoughts on that about you know we we i guess have seen the folly of our ways and what we've done to rivers the colorado compact over 100 years yeah. old at this point isn't serving no. us anymore and, and we're all trying to get to grips with yeah. that yeah yeah i you know i think that the most important uh, element of this book or for me any narrative is the story so I wanted to tell Victoria's story as, as well as I possibly could. Like I said earlier, I love her, and I felt a great obligation to tell her story as well as I possibly could. And so everything in the book is in service to that story. And so I didn't want to set out to make any sort of grand statements or, um, or, or grand you know, uh, political ideologies around notions of progress or even about wilderness preservation or, or even about um, wild rivers. Um, but um, that said, I do, have, I do have Victoria herself, in her own subtle way, question the whole concept of progress. Because um, underlying, in a very, in, I think in a very subtle way throughout the book, is asking, you know, progress? You know, I like to put that in quotation marks. We're sold as a culture, and we have throughout the settling of, of the United States, and certainly with westward expansion notions of progress that if you question them too much and you unpack very much from those mythologies around progress, you realize that a lot of people have to suffer in order for um, those notions of progress to be played out. So Wilson Moon is a character about that. Um, of course, it was a misguided and, and deeply mythologized and deeply misguided notion of progress that displaced the indigenous people from the American West in the first place. Horrific cultural and physical genocide um, that, was, um, that was justified in the name of manifest destiny. That idea has to be unpacked. Um, the idea of damming wild rivers in order to um, create progress. Victoria even questions it 
mildly at one point in the book. And so I think that even though I don't shout it out, it's an underlying theme throughout the course of the book. And I hope readers walk away from the novel um, unpacking that and deconstructing those notions a little bit. Um, the title of the book itself, Go as a River, is meant to be metaphorical, obviously, and to help us understand that Victoria's journey, but I would, uh, certainly my own journey, and I would argue most people's journey, for me is very similar to a river because um, you know rivers have to keep moving forward. It's in their nature to keep moving forward against um, you know obstacle up and over and around. You carve new banks. You move however you need to move in order to keep moving forward no matter what obstacle is put in front of you. And for Victoria, that certainly is true. Layers of challenges, layers of difficult decisions. And she knows she has to keep doing the next right thing. And that's what moves her forward. Um, the Gunnison River itself, if you're not as familiar with the area, Gunnison River runs into Blue Mesa Reservoir as a wild and free river. It then becomes a, a, a lake that once was a river. But on the other side, the, the Blue Mesa Dam, are, there are release gates. And when, you know, it's controlled, but um, nevertheless, the Gunnison River on the other side pushes through that dam, flows into the Black Canyon, and continues on. And so, you know, the Gunnison River specifically, I think, is a lovely example of that you, that you, it takes a lot to stop the flow of a river, just like it would take a lot to stop Victoria's trajectory forward and her growth, um, because she's just that strong and she's just that resilient. There's so much to dig into. We're glad that we have a podcast version of this interview. We're going to hear questions from the audience because yeah. it's a beautiful book. Thank you. Really, Thank you. really for anyone um, in Colorado, it really will resonate. But anybody, there are such wonderful human themes. But um, I do encourage people who are listening on the radio to also check out the podcast version because we're going to have more conversation with Shelley Reed about her book, Go as a River. She's been our guest here at the Radio Book Club. Thank you, Shelley. Yeah, thank you so much. Lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Well, as we always do at the end of each radio episode, we announce what we're reading for the next month. So for the month of May, Arson, what are we reading for the Radio Book Club? We're going to read another Colorado author, Buzzy Jackson, with her new novel, To Die Beautiful. This is a World War II novel, and it's uh, basically about a, a true person, Hannah Shaft, who was a college student in Holland and became a Nazi resistor. And um, it's, it's, so she, took, she really looked at that story and um, has crafted a novel around it. Well, tune in for that on the fourth Thursday in May, 9 a.m. on KGNU. But don't forget, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. From the Boulder Bookstore, I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.